Welcome to the Neuropathy Commons podcast. My name is Alex Jamesian, and I'm a resident physician in the physical medicine and rehabilitation program at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. I'm joined today by Dr. Gordon Smith. Dr. Smith is the Kenneth and Diane Wright Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Department of Neurology at Virginia Commonwealth University. He leads an NIH-funded research team focusing on peripheral neuropathy in the setting of diabetes, obesity, and chemotherapy exposure. He has a particular interest in biomarker development and clinical trial design and is currently principal investigator for two NIH-funded multi-center clinical trials for peripheral neuropathy associated with diabetes and metabolic syndrome. He is a member of the Board of Directors for the Foundation for Peripheral Neuropathy and is a former member of the Board of Trustees for the American Brain Foundation and Board of Directors of the Peripheral Nerve Society. Dr. Smith, welcome to the show. We're very honored to have you here today. Thanks, Alex. I'm very pleased to be here with you. Fantastic. So this is our second episode now, and we here at Neuropathy Commons Podcast, we're interested in all things about neuropathy. You've had a long career in neuropathy since probably the time you came out of training. And before we begin, I just wanted our audience to learn a little bit more. What made you focus on neuropathy? Yeah, so it actually was before I even went training. So I went to medical school at the Mayo Clinic. And as you may or may not be aware, at the medical school at Mayo, all students are required to spend time doing research during their third year. And I knew I was interested in neurology, didn't know really what subspecialty area I might pursue. But I was looking for a good laboratory mentor. And Tony Windebank was highly recommended to me, who's obviously a very experienced neuropathy investigator and has interests even beyond neuropathy. So I picked a really exciting time to join Tony's lab. He had just moved into a new building and things were rapidly growing. And so it was really working with him where we were doing cell culture models of chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, uh, and then going to the clinic and seeing patients in clinic with him at the same time was very exciting. So I left medical school not only interested in neurology, but interested in peripheral neuropathy and neuromuscular medicine based on that experience. So I was the right person at the right That's really interesting. Uh, I did not know that your interest started that early in your career. When you were in residency, did you ever think about moving up the neuraxis into the brain or you always felt like you enjoyed neuropathy the most? Well, I had a brief foray into neuro-oncology. I had it in my mind that maybe I should be a neuro-oncologist. So I actually changed my advisor to one of our neuro-oncology faculty. And then I realized that I really was better suited for neuromuscular medicine. So I went back. But I think there's nothing like confirming a decision than exploring other options and realizing you were right the first time around. That's great. So you've been treating patients with neuropathy for quite a number of years, and you've made uh, many important contributions to the field, both in treatment and the evaluation of patients with neuropathy. What are some of the most memorable or satisfying things that you've done so far in your career? Obviously, taking care of patients is incredibly rewarding, and one can think of many patients who've done well or had good outcomes or even who you've uh, helped manage problems for which there isn't a good outcome. So that's obviously where the reward begins. But Obviously, thinking through problems, coming up with innovative solutions to those problems in partnership with other colleagues is very rewarding. So here I think about the work we've done with our NIH and foundation-funded research and working with uh, others at other institutions. And then I guess I'm at a point in my career where looking at the impact we have based on the work that our Mm. trainees are doing or other junior faculty, junior colleagues who are getting into the field. So I think at the end of the day, the impact you have is cumulative across all these different areas. For sure. Our audience should know that you were formerly at the University of Utah, but recently you've come to the Virginia Commonwealth University as the chair of the entire neurology department, not just the neuromuscular division. What kinds of things do you hope to see transpire in the program under your leadership in the next five to 10 years? 
Yeah, I mean, we're trying to build a nationally prominent department of neurology that is equally focused on providing the best patient-centered care in a curious, academically rich environment and also really serving the career development, professional engagement needs of our entire team. I think these are objectives that form a virtuous Mm. cycle. And We've been here now about three years and been rapidly growing the department. We're now at about 20 new faculty and another probably four or five offers either under review or on their way back to us. So it's been very exciting, very dynamic environment. We've built an amazing neuromuscular team here, which is really great. So it's been a lot of fun. That's phenomenal. The VCU Neurology Department is lucky to have you. But in addition to being the chair and dealing with growing your program, You're also very active in clinical trials with neuropathy, and that's one of the things I was really hoping we could talk about because I'm sure our audience will be interested to hear what you're learning about. So you are one of the investigators for the top CSPN trial. Is that correct? That's right. This is the topiramate as a disease-altering therapy for cryptogenic sensory peripheral neuropathy. Can you tell our audience what is this disease that you're studying and kind of just a little bit about the trial itself? What are the basic things we should know? Yeah, so C-SPAN, or sometimes people call it idiopathic neuropathy, is one of the most common forms of peripheral neuropathy, almost by definition, because it is neuropathy without an otherwise identifiable Mm -hmm. cause. So diabetes is the most common cause of neuropathy, but 30-40% of patients don't have a clearly defined cause. So it's an incredibly common Mm -hmm. problem, and one for which we don't have really good solutions. And in fact, the therapeutic development for neuropathy, including pain management, and efforts at disease modification have really focused Mm. on diabetes uh, appropriately. And even there, we don't have good solutions. So our work has largely been founded on trying to understand risk factors and disease mechanisms using human subject studies, epidemiology, and patients who have cryptogenic neuropathy. And what we and others have found is that people who have C-SPAN have a a high risk of having metabolic risk factors that are typically associated Mm -hmm. with diabetes. So being overweight, high cholesterol or hyperlipidemia, high blood pressure, or pre-diabetic levels of glucose dysregulation, so pre-diabetes or impaired glucose tolerance. And so we really first started our work trying to understand that risk relationship. And when it became clear, both through the epidemiology, animal models, that there was a story there, we naively embarked on efforts to treat it with thought that if diabetic neuropathy is hard to treat, maybe pre-diabetic neuropathy will be easier and began to look at just simple strategies to control metabolic risk and really focusing on lifestyle-based modifications. And as I know you and your listeners are aware, patients with diabetes can significantly improve their diabetes or at times reverse the diabetes with effective diet and exercise and weight loss. Yeah. And we've done a bunch of studies over the years that we can certainly talk about that show that this strategy appears to be effective in both diabetic neuropathy and cryptogenic neuropathy. That is that if we can get people exercising and eating a healthier diet, they do better in regards to neuropathy. And this appears to be due to enhancement in the nerve's ability to regenerate. But the problem is that not everyone can exercise for long periods of time patients who are mobility limited and so forth. And so it'd be really great to have a medicine that would do the Mm -hmm. same thing. And so the idea behind, we call it top spin or NN108 because it's being performed through the Mm -hmm. Neuronex network, 
It's a great story. It was in a cab ride at a meeting at the FDA. There were three of us in the cab. One is named, or he still is named. He was then Bob Dworkin, mm-hmm. who's a very highly regarded clinical trialist interested in neuropathic pain. Arthur Vinnick, who's the endocrinologist who has interest in diabetic neuropathy. And I were going to an FDA meeting about mm-hmm. neuropathy. And really, we've been called to the principal's office as a community to talk about why it is we didn't have more effective therapies. And it was Bob Dworkin who said, you know, have you thought about going back to look at topiramate? One, because the earlier phase studies were pretty promising for its use as a neuropathic pain agent in diabetic neuropathy, but specifically because it has as one of its most common side effects, mm. weight loss. And Arthur said, yeah, that's interesting. We've done some preliminary studies that suggest that brief courses of topiramate can really improve neuropathy. And they had done some work looking at skin biopsy and neuropathy mm-hmm. symptoms that to get better with. It was an idea in the back of a cab that led to ultimately this drug trial, which is the first attempt ever at a disease-modifying therapy for C-SPAN, which is one of the most common neurological problems of adulthood. Yeah, I think that's important to emphasize for the audience that many of the mainstays of treatment for neuropathy currently, unless the cause is known, is mostly around symptom control. So gabapentin or Lyrica or amitriptyline, these are agents that are first line for treating the pain symptoms that people have. But as far as I know, they're not thought to change the actual underlying disease process. But in contrast, you and your colleagues hypothesize that topiramate will actually change something about the underlying pathology. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And it turns out, I mean, we've got very good disease-modifying therapies for certain forms of inflammatory neuropathy, And we know that in type 1 diabetes, controlling blood glucose aggressively reduces neuropathy risk very significantly. But in type 2 diabetes, obviously, you want to have good glycemic control, but intensive control doesn't convey significant decrease in neuropathy risk. It definitely helps with many other things, but not in type 2 diabetes for neuropathy. And so... That's the idea behind this study. So it's why the study is designed, it's an 18-month study, to look at the long-term effects of using right. topiramate. And uh, topiramate is already an FDA-approved drug used in epilepsy and, and seizures treatment. So that's one barrier that you and your colleagues don't have to jump over. You're not coming up with a new compound, but it's something that you could repurpose for the treatment of neuropathy. And that should expedite this use if it turns out that way that it's effective. Now, you've mentioned about kind of yeah. the metabolic factors, but cryptogenic sensory polyneuropathy is kind of an umbrella term for what could be many different entities with different underlying processes. Do you have a sense that topiramate will be effective for a subset of all people with cryptogenic sensory polyneuropathy, or do you think it could be for everyone? Yeah, that's a great question. This is one of the reasons that people haven't tried to do disease modification trials or even neuropathic pain trials in this patient population because it's likely a mixture of multiple different right. problems, not just right. one disease. And I think that's true in other areas. Uh, if you think about ALS clinical trials, ALS is probably a final common pathway of right. multiple different genetic and acquired neurodegenerative processes. So same is true here. So undoubtedly, it's not going to work mm-hmm. for everyone. I think one of the interesting things about topiramate is its mechanism of action is it's messy. It does a lot of different things. So it's a sodium channel blocker. And we do know that sodium channels play an important role in neuropathic pain. It may play a role in nerve degeneration. Mm -hmm. There's some evidence from diabetes. And so one of the things that we have thought about is whether the impact of topiramate might not just be metabolic in terms of weight loss, improved insulin sensitivity, and so forth, but it may actually have impact on sodium Mm -hmm. channel function. 
So for instance, there's a theory that some patients with painful, particularly small fiber, predominant neuropathy have mutations in sodium channels. These seem to be really uncommon yeah. in the United States, but we're actually gathering DNA from participants in the trial so that we can go back and sequence mm-hmm. sodium channels to see if there's any pharmacogenomic influence that uh, people who have particular sequence variants are more or less likely to respond. The trial isn't powered to do that, but we're certainly biosampling people so that we have the ability to go back and do that analysis. That's a very wise thing to do because that might then kind of seed the next trial as you begin to try to refine whom this will benefit and learn more about maybe the underlying pathology that is leading to their problem. So where are you and your colleagues in this trial right now? Are you enrolling? Yeah, so we've completed enrollment. I mistakenly said the duration was shorter than as it's a 96-week mm. trial. So we fully enrolled around October of 2019. So our last patient will exit the trial this fall. So we should be getting results in about a year, which is very exciting. So a lot more work yet to be done. And we fortunately managed to navigate this quite successfully through COVID. We were quite worried a year ago about the ability to finish off the study, but it's gone surprisingly well. We haven't lost a lot of participants. And so we think we're going to get good data at the end of the day. And whether it's positive or not, we're going to Mm -hmm. learn a lot. There's a lot of lessons in terms of how we design clinical trials that we hope to get from this in terms of the specific ways that we're measuring treatment responsiveness and even the statistical design of the trial. Um, even if it's a negative trial, the fact that we're doing it is a big win for the field and for the patient. That's community. a great perspective. Absolutely. One aims to do something where no matter what the outcome, even if it doesn't confirm the thing that you would hope for, there'll be something you can learn for the next one. That's fantastic. We'll all look very forward yeah. uh, to the results of that and hopefully have you back on the podcast to talk about the results. Yeah, but even if it's negative, it's important to learn from one's failures. I think that's the clinical trial network that is you know, doing this was really designed in large part to ensure that clinical trials provide useful information. There are lots of examples of clinical trials not being designed well or not enrolling and therefore not getting good information. Mm. But if it's a negative trial, we're still going to learn Absolutely. a lot. So to that point, a uh, top CSPN study is part of this NeuroNext network that you're a part of. Can you tell our audience a little about that? Yeah, so I think the NeuroNext was first developed by NIH in 2011 with the idea to accelerate early phase clinical development of promising therapeutic agents, so phase two clinical trials. So the idea is that We have all of these compounds and treatment ideas that work in animal models. So if you're a mouse with just about anything, we've got something to help you out. And once you get to phase three clinical trials, the hit rate increases, but it's the so-called valley Mm -hmm. of death at the level of phase two. So after you've proven that the drug appears to be safe for human trials, the next phase is to look for early evidence of efficacy and help design a larger phase trial. And there are all kinds of problems. And so what NIH thought to do, and I think there are a lot of people who deserve credit for this, probably Petra Kaufman being one of the most important and others, was to develop a clinical trial network of expert clinician scientists, clinical trialists who were funded to have a team ready to go. So study coordinators, other resources so that they could do phase two clinical trials that were proposed to the network. And so this has been, I think, very successful. We're now up to, I think, the 12th clinical Mm. trial. And across a broad set of disorders, this is the only neuropathy trial that's been performed or is ongoing. So what's exciting is that these trials enroll on time, by and large, and have really good quality Mm -hmm. metrics and are yielding very informative results. So it's a new model for how to do clinical trials. 
cancer people have been doing this for a long time, creating cooperative study groups, and, and this has features that shared in common with that. So this is the first neuropathy trial in Neuronex. Hopefully there'll be yeah. more. That sounds like a tremendously valuable framework on a group of collaborators. And also, especially with this neuropathy trial that you've done, you've now got patients who might be willing to participate in the next one that you do. So you've already kind of done some of the heavy lifting and maybe identifying people who are willing to contribute in that way. Along those lines, I know we're not even done with the top CSPN trial, but have you begun to think about what are the next kinds of things you're interested in studying? Yeah, so I think here there are a couple of different aspects, at least with this patient population. One is looking for promising disease-modifying agents in the therapeutic pipeline, and certainly very appealing targets. One that comes to mind that's shared with chemotherapy-induced neuropathy is programmed exonal mm-hmm. death and so inhibitors of that. But we are having discussions and really focusing our effort is trying to think of a more nuanced approach to lifestyle modification mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for patients with neuropathy work we've done has really focused on almost a medical-based approach where patients come to supervised exercise training programs that are near a hospital. These tend to be hard to sustain. They're expensive. People don't really want to drive to a hospital to exercise or to a physical therapy mm-hmm. facility. So through how we can develop community-based or even virtual lifestyle-based intervention programs, so it's a tough nut to crack, but it's something that we're thinking about is perhaps the next step in, in this journey. Yeah, I think the audience, some of whom are patients, would be very interested in kind of finding out how to even be a part of something important like that. Patients obviously are a big part of these trials. How can people with neuropathy who wants to be a part of the research of finding out how to treat neuropathy, how can they get involved? What would you recommend to patients who might be interested in something like this for your next trial? Yeah, so I think there are multiple different ways. A really great place to find clinical trials because all of them are there Mm -hmm. is clinicaltrials.gov. So if one goes to the website, every clinical trial is registered there. And so it's an easy place to see what trials are going on and you can see where they are. Obviously, most patients with neuropathy are seeing a doctor for their neuropathy and keeping in touch with that physician or provider regarding what clinical trials are available, both at that practice or institution or elsewhere. There certainly are patient groups. The Mm -hmm. Foundation for Peripheral Neuropathy Early is a good place to keep an eye on. Foundation has a website that has information about clinical trials. So There are multiple different ways of doing that. Clinicaltrials.gov is super convenient. But seeing your doctor and saying, hey, what's new in the field is effective strategy. Yeah, that's great advice. That's a question we often get. Patients will reach out to us through the Neuropathy Commons website. And they're usually very savvy. I saw this paper or I read this study result. How can I get involved? Or a lot of times they'll even bring the paper to their neurologist or physician and say, hey, can we do this? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is even for really common problems, it can be surprisingly hard to enroll patients in clinical trials for a whole host of reasons. Uh, We certainly learned that the hard way and topspin. I think these sort of communication channels are incredibly important and I think engaging in the community. So it's nice to be able to get word out about a particular problem not only through the doctor's offices or hospitals, but through patient Mm -hmm. communities, support communities, faith communities which is also important in trying to get diverse representation in clinical trials, which is a real issue that For we sure. all face, is trying to get people to really represent our larger population involved Absolutely. in Absolutely. And kind of along those lines, you mentioned briefly, one of the many hats you wear is you're on the board of directors of the Foundation for Peripheral Neuropathy. Can you tell our audience about that group and what you and that organization do? 
Yeah, so the Foundation for Peripheral Neuropathy is a foundation obviously focused on neuropathy that really has as its mission to bring together patients with neuropathy and clinicians and researchers who are trying to find a solution for neuropathy and make a significant difference in the day-to-day lives of people with neuropathy. And so the foundation is focused on several priorities over the years. The largest priority now is the Peripheral Neuropathy Research Registry, or PNRR, which was designed to help provide the information and biorepository foundation to understand really core questions in neuropathy. Why is it that some people get pain and some don't? Yes. Why do some people with diabetes do and don't get neuropathy? What are the ways that we might measure neuropathy? What are predictors of severity and these sorts of things? And even how does one go about classifying different types of neuropathies? Yes. The registry is gathering information that really is a research tool. And in fact, we've talked a little bit about sodium channels as part of the Thompson mm-hmm. study. One of the first papers to come out of the PNRR looked at whether or not mutations or variations in the genetic code or genetic sequence of sodium channels were more likely in patients with neuropathy than in population databases, or were they enriched in patients who did and did not have pain. And at least in the registry data set, it didn't appear to be the case, which is interesting. So that's a negative finding, but still extremely useful information. And for so sure. a number of other projects that people are beginning to use the registry for. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, actually, that was something that when I'm still relatively early in my research career, but that was something that really caught my eye because even to answer the question about the sodium channel that you just mentioned, for any one researcher at one institution to be able to get those kinds of numbers of participants to be able to even address a question like that, is very, very challenging. But with this resource that you and your colleagues at the Foundation for Peripheral Neuropathy have created, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. You use a well-characterized group of people and the biosamples that have been collected to answer some of these really basic questions, like you said, that we haven't really pinned down yet. So this is extremely exciting. And I look forward to seeing the kinds of interesting ideas that people apply to this resource of biospecimens. You know, we have a lot to learn from cancer centers, and we talked about trial networks, also how you engage communities of people and patients in your mission, and cancer centers get that. And one of the ways that cancer centers really get it is the integration of research into clinical care. One of the metrics that the National Cancer Institute uses to judge centers that want to be a comprehensive cancer center is what percentage of patients that they see are involved in discovery. Mm. Uh, Are they in a clinical trial? Are they in a natural history study? What are the opportunities to engage in research? And we have a lot to learn in neurology and neuroscience about that. I think the registry offers a relatively easy way for patients to participate in important research. So for listeners who are near one of the foundation PNRR sites, there's an opportunity to engage and be part of the discovery. You don't have to take any medicines at all just by answering questions and having the examination data, blood contributed. If you're willing, that's really going to help us find answers to what causes neuropathy and eventually how to treat it. Yes, for sure. And I'll be sure to put the website for the foundation in our show notes. So is that the way if someone wants to participate in the registry, should they go to your website or talk to their physician or how would they do that? So I would look at the website and see yeah. where the sites are. And certainly if you live in a place, you know, so the University of Michigan just joined, for instance. So Very nice. if you are in Southeast Michigan or Northeast Ohio and you're interested to go into Ann Arbor, then the foundation website will have information about who you can contact there. 
And, you know, most people that are participants in the registry live near one of the centers. I suppose if one were really motivated, you <laughs> travel to one of the centers. Right. That's good to know. Actually, is Washington University part of the network? I think we might be. I think Washington University just joined, actually. Excellent. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I'll send some folks to the registry if they're interested. You mentioned some basic questions that are still outstanding in neuropathy. If you had to pick, let's say, two or three things that you really wanted to address about just basic things about neuropathy, what are, what are some of the outstanding questions that you feel like the field needs to tackle in the next couple of years? Oh, gosh, that is a really good question. So no pressure now. <laughs> no pressure now. Yeah, I think that there are so many challenges. We've been talking a lot about the role of metabolism in neuropathy. And so I think understanding the importance of metabolic abnormalities in mm. neuropathy pathogenesis is a big issue, right? Because it's so common. It is a tractable target, but it's one that requires a fair bit of effort. I think we're on our way to understanding that. And so I think that's one issue. I think a better understanding of shared disease mechanisms across mm. different neuropathies. So I talked about programs like Sonal Death. They're, you know, colleagues of yours at Washington University yes. are working on inhibitors of this process that in animal models seem very exciting. And that is a druggable target that could impact the final common pathway of multiple different types of neuropathy. So I think there's a disease mechanism that's really exciting. You're referring to the SARM-1 protein, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Very very exciting. Yeah, sorry sorry to cut you off there. Yeah, no, but that is getting a lot of attention. And I believe some of the main investigators here, Dr. Milbrandt and D'Antonio, have actually formed a company to find, and I think they might even have a lead compound. So that's super exciting. And I'm following that closely. Yep. The company was called Disarm Therapeutics, which has just been purchased by Lilly. And there's a natural history study going on to lay the foundation for a clinical trial of one of their small molecule SARM-1 inhibitors. So that's very exciting, very exciting work. I mean, there's obviously been a lot of excitement in specific forms of hereditary neuropathy, so a little far afield from what I'm talking about, but only drugs that have been approved for disease modification in axonal or wiring as opposed to insulation-type neuropathies have been the molecular therapies for hereditary amyloidosis, transthyretin mm-hmm. amyloidosis. So that's exciting. We're now seeing gene therapy, molecular trials in forms of Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease. And so that's very exciting, particularly for patients who have those forms of Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease. But I think one of the reasons people become interested in CMT is that the genetic spectrum of CMT has a lot to teach us about normal nerve function, what can go awry, not just in that specific form, but in acquired peripheral nerve diseases. So I think in the next few years, we're going to be learning a lot more, not only about how we might use these novel therapeutics to treat rare diseases, but I think that may inform us about how we might approach more common diseases as well. And maybe the last thing I would say, and this is sort of what we're trying to do in Topspin, is that it's not too hard to figure out how a parachute works. But for slowly progressive diseases, diabetic neuropathy, cryptogenic neuropathy, trying to figure out if you are actually making a difference is tough, right? Yes. For pain, not so difficult. But if we were to slow the progression of a disease meaningfully, how can you design clinical trials to pick that up? Yes. And in a similar fashion, what about coming up with strategies for prevention trials? And in neuropathy that, or diabetes, that's something that we've been quite interested in. Can mm-hmm. you identify patients who are at high risk, find a screening mechanism? And we've looked at potential options for this to screen patients 
and then identify those who are at high risk and try disease prevention strategies in those. So I think those are all very different areas. And then the other mechanisms, inflammation is important Mm -hmm. in these people interested in microbiomes. It's a great time to be going into neuropathy research. Yes, it's wide open and clearly there's a lot of work to be done, fundamental things to address. You mentioned it at the end there about immune causes. There's speculation and maybe some support for the idea that some of these cryptogenic sensory neuropathies might have an immune or autoimmune etiology underlying them. And I think that generates a lot of excitement because in other neuromuscular diseases like Guillain-Barre or like CIDP, we do use immunomodulatory therapies to address them sometimes very effectively. But when it comes to something like a idiopathic small fiber neuropathy, some people try these therapies, but there's not really any strong gold standard evidence for that. But I wanted to ask your thoughts on for someone who has a cryptogenic sensory neuropathy Do you ever think about using immune modulatory therapy for that purpose? I get that question a lot from patients who will just kind of reach out. And so I wanted to address that with you on the show. So I think it depends on the clinical situation. But for a patient who has a typical idiopathic or cryptogenic neuropathy, pattern slowly progressive, et cetera, generally not. I think it depends on what you mean by immune therapy. So if you mean giving them intravenous immunoglobulin or immunosuppressant agents, no. But Mm -hmm. if we think about it less in terms of immunity and more inflammation, then actually everything we're doing is focusing on inflammation, right? Yes, indeed. They're almost undoubtedly examples of autoimmune axonal neuropathies, but I think they're relatively uncommon. And the yes. ones that we see are things like peripheral nerve vasculitis. There are some perineoplastic situations, which are very rare. But I think I certainly am extremely cautious about launching into immunosuppressant mm-hmm. therapies for patients without having good evidence that it's an autoimmune problem for fear of having adverse effects with that. But it's a great for question. Sure. But, Thank you. But I mean, I think inflammation is where it's at. That's great, Dr. Schmidt. Thank you so much for answering all my questions and for just bringing all of your knowledge and expertise about neuropathy. Is there any final words for our listeners before we wrap it up? Well, I'd say thank you, Alex, for not only inviting me, it's a great honor, but for doing this. I think it's a great resource for the community. And, you know, I think what's great is we've spent the better part of an hour talking to each other and just scratched the surface. So it's an exciting time. And I hope all of your listeners continue to be engaged in the community and helping us support better patient care and finding solutions and ultimately cures. For sure. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you all to our audience. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of the Neuropathy Commons podcast. Be well.